Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. All right, and welcome to another episode with, well, basically we're gonna call this Profs on Profile for now. So today, in this episode, we've got Jen MacArthur, and um, she's probably one of the more recently tenured faculty members we've got, and uh, she teaches in our project management uh, division. But, you know, I'm running the risk of butchering what she does and who she is. So, Jen, could you take an opportunity now to tell us basically who you are, where you're coming from, and maybe we'll talk about your teaching as well. Sure. So... I am a mechanical engineer who worked in project management and sustainable design for about 15 years before I became a prof. I'm originally from Ottawa, went to school at Waterloo, moved to India for six years. Didn't we have an agreement we wouldn't talk about that place? Like, (laughs) maybe I should have put that. Okay, fine, fine. Go go ahead. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Not not India. I love India. Great, great people. Uh, Just... Go, okay, sorry, I, sorry, I, went, I went to the dark place for school. I was okay, an engineering, no, no. it's different. Don't get me in trouble, man. Just, okay, fine. I uh, lived in India for six years doing disaster relief and rural development with a three-month kind of sojourn in Senegal in West Africa. That was interesting. Do you want to describe I, what you did there, Jen? Yeah, I was... So in India, I spent most of my time working with a group of hospitals doing capital projects. So I was doing energy and water master planning, um, sustainable design, kind of additions and retrofits for basically buildings. So a lot of like alternative energy work, some passive solar work, especially on my house. I did spent a couple of years running a series of experiments because I had rooms in my house that were about 40 to 50 degrees Celsius in the summer and they were just unusable. So we would play with, you know, painting the roof a bright white reflective color or adding external shading with tarps. And we would have a bunch of different temperature sensors or, well, they were cheap thermos or thermometers that we'd buy at the bazaar. Mm-hmm. And we would track that. We tried to build a solar chimney. Well, you tried? I thought you did. All the we time, built, I thought you did, man. We built a small solar chimney. It wound up needing a fan assist mm. to work for the nighttime cooling, and that it actually worked better as a nighttime cooling system. So, so, so we, Jen, I, I think I think it, it would be worth mentioning though. Why why India? Why Senegal? I mean, like that that's a like you could have gone to other parts of the world, right? Uh, yeah. So I was the fourth or fifth person to sign up with Engineers Without Borders back in the year 2000. So it was you to date fr- yourself. Good I job. know, I, I'm, I'm geriatric. And my friend George Roeder actually started EWB in 2000. And the very first event he had was uh, Ray McGrath, who was speaking. He won the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize. He was part of the international campaign to ban landmines. And he was speaking. And I just decided that I wanted to do something really valuable. I used to work for a strip mining oil company and realized one day that I, there must be better uses for my degree than to help a strip mining oil company make more money. Mm-hmm. And so I joined Engineers Without Borders. I spoke on my DM- I wound up doing my master's developing boots for people clearing landmines. And I spoke at the first Engineers Without Borders conference in Montreal. And while I was there, I met a guy named Bunker Roy 
who ran an NGO called the Barefoot College, which is kind of a for the villagers, by the villagers approach to development. Mm -hmm. And at the end of his one hour keynote, he asked if we had questions. And I said, so if we want to do this, what did we do? And he said, sit on the, uh, come to India, sit on the floor and let illiterate people teach you. Hmm. And if you can do that, you can stay as long as you like. So I said, okay. So we up and moved to India and that was 2003. Mm -hmm. That lasted about six months when I made the um, particular NGO career-ending mistake of translating between two cultures, neither of which were mine, hmm. and had very different communication styles. And as they pointed out, as Bunker pointed out, it's nothing personal, but we were expendable. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah. we were scapegoated for the whole problem. He actually gave me a letter of reference a few years later for any NGO I wanted to work at. Oh, great. Well connected. So it literally was not. And that's how you got personal. to work for Ryerson. <laughs> no, no, that was later, actually. Yeah, so I know, I know. When I came back to Canada, I got a job at Airup and I wound up leading the mechanical engineering team in Toronto. And let's just draw attention to how big was that team for this large multinational firm? Okay, well, the entire Toronto office, I was the 34th person in the office. And it was a team of two by that point. I was the second mechanical engineer and the only PNG. And I'd I say, the, how many women at that point in time? Um, well, I was on, on my tomb of two. I was the only one. Yeah, there we go. There we go. See. Um, but it was about it was about thirty to forty percent in the office. It was actually pretty good. Oh wow! Back in the day. This is twenty ten. This was not that long ago. I don't know. I just remember back in the day doing engineering courses, and there's like oh, when I was an undergrad, two, there were yeah. four women in my class. Yeah, it's like it wasn't even two percent. It was like just two girls. So yeah. yeah. You know, we were an endangered species. It was it was quite fun. Okay. But yeah, so I worked at Arup for what kind of projects? Um, I well, I led the mechanical design for the Vaughan Metropolitan Subway, and that was with Grimshaw, mm -hmm. the York University Subway Station with Fosters, Billy Bishop Airport with Zass. Mm -hmm. um, I stamped the Lasand or the Bridgeboro Center for Engineering Excellence at York University. Also and the then I led the mechanical design day-to-day -day for the Pan Am Games. So that was the Velodrome, mm -hmm. the Hamilton Ticat Stadium, and the York Track and Field Stadium. And then I did, yeah. And that was basically my big projects there. I did some existing building consulting as well. Mm -hmm. And I basically got my feet wet. But one of the most interesting projects that I did was a pro bono job. And that was designing a creche and primary medical center, which is basically a very simple medical clinic in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. And that was with a group from Ryerson and a professor named Ian McBurney. And mm -hmm. while I was there, we would basically spend two or three hours every couple of weeks and a bunch of fourth year and master's Ryerson students would come on over with Ian and we would sit around and we would have charrettes and we would brainstorm and we just had an incredible time. And I had never experienced anything like that in my life. And I just completely fell in love with this whole design approach. So mm -hmm. that was 2011 and 2013 when another project came up and another chance to collaborate, I jumped at it. And uh, then that location summer, was that one? That was in Ghana. Yes, the Ghana that one. Was, yes. That was Capodose? the orphanage in Ghana. Oh, the orphanage, okay. So neither of these actually got built. These are okay. these are the two two ladder of the Africa Schools projects that Ian mm -hmm. did, and yeah, basically in the middle of the summer, I got this email saying, 
to our team basically saying, hey, there's a couple of postings at Ryerson. Would anybody like to teach? And I applied to Ryerson and wound up getting a job. You actually interviewed me. Hey, 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 they're recording this, man. Jesus. I know. And during the interview, I found out that Ryerson's classes started during Frosh Week. So I met with you on Wednesday, only to find out that my first lecture was the following Wednesday morning. Hey, that's how we roll, man. That's how we roll. It was, and it has been a crazy sprint since. So in terms of teaching, my I, I basically live in third year studio. And I sometimes teach sections. Recently, I've shifted more into a consulting role because I wind up answering a lot of mechanical engineering and structural design and mm -hmm. sustainability and BIM questions generally. And then I also teach the ASC 522 course, which if you haven't taken it yet, it's the real reason you came to Ryerson. Which is project it's project economics. economics. Yes, it's the course yes. everybody looks forward to. Actually, you know what, Jen, I think it might take a couple of steps back here because the audience, uh, we have first and second year students as well as the general public here, and they might not know all these, you know, terms that you just threw out. Um, for example, I, I think right off the bat, we, you've, you've clearly identified as a mechanical engineer, but, you know, when, when we understand architecture in a certain way, what, can you just really give a high level overview of what is mechanical engineering's role in architecture? Sure. Um... If we do our job right, you never know we were there. Like ninjas. <laughs> Basically, the, it was described to me in a charrette once that the perfect building mechanical engineer is able to design a system that meets all of the life safety and comfort needs because we do sprinkler systems, we do um, smoke extract and like safety ventilation, we don't do all of the outdoor air provisions and indoor environmental quality and comfort conditions. So if, if it's a safe and comfortable building and that doesn't go wrong, mm -hmm. and if we can somehow manage to design in such a way that it can be hidden or seamlessly integrated into the architecture without pulling back from it, then that's, that's a great mechanical engineer. So in the room that whoever's listening to this podcast is in, they probably have some sort of grill provide, providing hot or cold air, depending mm -hmm. on the climate. They may or may not have running water, right? Mm -hmm. So it's airflow, plumbing, heating and cooling, fire safety, all so, so, of that sort of thing is the mechanical engineering parts of buildings. Yeah, all the parts that make a building really work, I guess, right? That makes it occupiable. We would mm -hmm. basically die we, mm -hmm. we would get sick. We get sick building syndrome and we would, we would be absolutely miserable and unable to stay in a lot of our contemporary architecture, architectural yeah, buildings if we didn't design mechanical systems for it. Yeah. So we're not just making really big coffins. We're actually making buildings that, as we would say, is a machine for living, right? Exactly. Um, so, so then I think you also threw in the term BIM. I think uh, you and I know, but uh, I think, again, some of the kids, uh, you know, I, I, I've uh, kind of juried a couple of high school Revit classes, uh, uh, final projects already. So we, we're seeing more and more of it. But just for those that are uninformed, care to enlighten us on what is BIM? Yeah, so... Um, BIM is often misunderstood to be 3D CAD, so that, uh, that would be a computer-aided design software. Mm -hmm. And while technically that's true, BIM is capable of being a lot more than that. Yep. So when I refer to BIM, I'm not just referring to something that lets you draw a 3D representation of the building. I'm, it's a smart, 
it's a smart software in the sense that a door isn't four lines that look like the front of the door from the front and another four lines that look like the side of the door. You can place mm -hmm. a door. It knows it's a door. You can tell it what kind of key opens the door. You can tell it the material of the doorknob and all of that is actually built into the object. Mm -hmm. So it's an object oriented representation. You can map pretty much any kind of data. So when I do a lot of facility management BIM research. Uh, you might want to define what facility management is too. It's how you figure out how to run your facility. So you could, I can make a heat map of the building. So I can make, I, I can look at a floor plan. So you look at basically the layout of a floor of a building and I can map in the data and tell you which rooms are too hot, which rooms are too cold. I can overlay that again with how many complaints have there been by room and you can start to get a sense of how the building's really operating. Hmm. So when I talk to people who are unfamiliar and they say, inevitably, what can you put in BIM? And the answer is you can put in anything. I could put in information about everybody's favorite pizza order and how many slices they usually have. I could tie that in with a sensor network for occupancy sensors because I do a lot of internet of things and smart building research mm -hmm. to calculate who's in the building on a particular day. So we can optimize the pizza order and actually order exactly the right number of slices of pizza that everybody wants with, and minimize waste. Okay, Just so silly. You would never put that into a building model. But the fact of the matter is, is there's no limit on the kind of data that you can have. Okay, so just to be clear about this, kids, uh, we do not need you to put pizza information in your Revit families, uh, just to, to make sure that it makes life easier. It might be nice Easter eggs, but I don't think any prof, uh, even the ones that teach docs, uh, they don't go through your Revit files that, uh, that judiciously. In any event, I think you start talking about the research side of things, Jen. So, you know, you start talking about the um, kind of robustness of facilities management and certainly uh, with its relationship with BIM. And um, I think you and I have both looked into various, uh, you know, BIM related projects, but you've got an entire lab, you've got an entire armada of, you know, researchers, you've been pulling millions of dollars. So, I mean, you got to give a high level outline of what you're doing, because I think uh, it, it's worth mentioning for people pursuing masters and even again, first and second year or students anywhere uh, to know what it is that you do uh, with respect to research? Absolutely. So my main area of focus of research is what we call smart buildings. And in a nutshell, smart buildings use machine learning, which we often sloppily refer to as artificial intelligence, and sensor networks, like Internet of Things sensors, and sort of predictive algorithms in with your building information to try and figure out the best way to run a building. This so is very a good example would be. Really well, and that's the thing. Specifically, yeah. I do a lot of work on what I call smart commissioning or ongoing commissioning of buildings. So I did a project a couple, starting a couple of years ago, and I'm still working with them now, where we looked at condominiums that had been built in Toronto in the last 10 years. We would stream the data on from the building on how the boiler system was responding. So we'd get temperature rates, flow rates, outdoor air temperatures, et cetera. And we made a machine learning model that could actually predict, we could basically figure out at any time how much energy the building needed for heating mm -hmm. based on a variety of these factors, predict that as a function of the building controls, and then we could actually optimize the control system to minimize greenhouse gases. And we were seeing anywhere from 25 to 70% savings in boiler, gas consumption. So that's greenhouse gas reductions 
just by changing some controls points. Basically saying, instead of trying to aim to have the building water at this temperature, bring it down a couple of degrees. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to, to cut down. So we actually basically figured out exactly what the building needed and then found the ideal system to give the building exactly what it needed when it needed it with nothing extra. And just to be emphatically clear about a couple of other points here, I mean, that's really uh, a great point of research right now. Like, I mean, everything from the AI capacity, the kind of uh, sustainability drives, the automation, the IoT stuff. I mean, that's a real uh, huge productivity plan there. And, and you've been able to secure, you know, a, a little facility. Do you want to talk about that little uh, place you got on Dundas now? Yeah, so soon? we have we've been given a lot, and I'm currently waiting for some funding decisions. What we've applied, we've got about two and a half million dollars in industry sponsorship, and we're going for another four million dollars in grants to build out what's called the Smart Campus Integration and Testing Lab, and that's basically a 300, 300 square meter building. First floor has a smart home, so it's like a one bedroom condominium or apartment of the future with a lot of kind of state-of-the-art smart home technologies, as well as an operation and visualization center that feeds data, or will feed basically the campus data from Ryerson, because we're working very closely with facilities management, mm-hmm. and getting some of that data, taking out the personal information, and then using it to run analytics and actually visualize how the campus is behaving. So which buildings are having the most occupant complaints? How is this tying into energy consumption? Where are some of the opportunities? So it winds up being a working facility that our facilities management team can use. And, and, and where will that building be? Just so the corner can... of Dundas and Mutual. So you guys know that corner that's right now a, a little bit of an empty lot. It used to be a parking lot back in the day. Then they put gravel on it. And then they has got random, like it looked like transformers on it. Um, and now... It was, it was the battery bank for the Center yeah. for Urban Energy. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's going to be Jen's facility. So... Yeah. And then the second floor, we have an office mock-up, but it's going to be really interesting. And we're aiming for net zero carbon in operation. So it's going to be a mass timber structure. It's going to be the world's first 100% digitally enabled building. So we're going to be able to upload, you know, take a picture with your app. If you've got a trusted security key and you will be added to the facial recognition to open the doors in the facility, for example, that's Holy some crap. of the fun stuff that we're playing with. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's Disneyland. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Like what isn't this building? It's like, it's covering every single base, sustainability, IOT, BIM. And of course now we're dealing with like, you know, facial recognition and mass timber. I mean, like, come on, man. Just like, and it's to- an, and human building interaction. So there's a lot of, we're collaborating with some researchers from Carleton U of T in Waterloo in the facility. And there's some really interesting work with U of T and Carleton where they're actually looking at human building interactions. So we're gonna be working with them on how the building space is affecting the occupants and how our behavior turns around and affects that. And actually Terry Peters has done a lot of work mm-hmm. with this team as well. So I expect that it, that as time progresses, she will be increasingly using our building for some of her tests. So it's going to be really interesting. There's some opportunities for some of our other faculty to look at envelopes. We're going to be putting some sensors into the mass timber structure. Mm -hmm. And and the whole thing is going to be modular prefabrication. So we're looking for literally three months of site time, including pouring the foundations. So I think one question, like, I mean, you've thrown out so many different 
a crash aspects. course in construction. Well, well, I know, but it's it's also like a lot of stuff has just been like peppered in that conversation rather casually. But you know, for more information, where would the, where would a student listening to all this stuff, not just simply looking at your bio, which we're going to get to a sec, um, but um, what what resource would you say is available for students interested in basically any of that stuff? Because I mean, we don't always dispense with that in first year, and sometimes we don't cover any of that in the undergrad program whatsoever, right? So, so how would one get a good grasp of this so they can approach you without sounding like they're complete idiots? Um, it's a really good question, actually. Really? Okay, I, wow, score one for Vince there. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, the fact of the matter is there's, there's a lot of, the problem is I could say you could, you could look up some of this. One of the big problems, and it's just a problem of our time, is that the information that you find on the internet isn't curated by anybody. Mm-hmm. So you'll find a lot of overhyped sales information from companies telling you what they know you want to, what you, they think you want to hear mm-hmm. rather than necessarily an unbiased version of the truth. Yeah. Where I go, I have some favorite journals, but that's not really light undergrad reading. Uh, but I mean, just to get a familiarity, like, I mean, like, you know, I, it's not uncommon. Kids don't read all that much anymore. You and I both teach them. Um, like, I mean, are there videos or some online just general I sites? I actually just prepared a um, emerging technologies in construction and basically what the game changers are. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind something dated from 2020, we can include a link in the description of this podcast and I can put that up on the public domain somewhere. Okay, but just, just to, if, if, if this is going out soon later, but what should they be looking for just so I can like the title officially no nothing you see you don't have a title Emerge, either. It, no it's well it's changing let me say i will i will open it up now making me work here hey listen man it, it's your research man this is, this is the stuff that you do like new technologies wanna... and industry trends new technologies and industry trends okay and that will be available sometime yeah, we'll, we'll post, we'll add a link to the podcast. Okay, all right. We'll see if we can get that, if I can figure out how to finagle that part. But you know what? That's your teaching. That's your research. Now you're here with us. That's great. You got tenured. Everyone's happy. We know what you teach. We know that you supervise everything from building science, MRPs, all the way through to uh, every so often you got architecture students. You've had architecture students uh, like Brandon just you know, work under your watch and then be sent to various conferences. What countries have you sent? Was it Greece, Scotland? Where, where else have you sent kids? I've sent people to Greece, England, Berlin, Finland. Those aren't, those aren't countries, but you know. Um, the States, we, we've had people go to Chicago. Mm. We've got a couple papers slated to be presented in Sao Paulo in June. Mm-hmm. And I have some students who are targeting some conferences in Luxembourg and Belgium next summer. Ah, so so just keep in mind, being smart, doing fun research gets you out and about. I mean, not to say that, you know, being in the department is bad, but obviously traveling the world is always a good thing. So let's talk about the other part about uh, you were mentioning, we just went through your whole entire bio officially um, from you. Yeah. But you and I both know that what you read on the internet, as you just described, isn't always the best and most reliable source. So I know that um, a lot of faculty members have these fun bios written up. So if someone were to Google us, um, you know, there's some videos I'm not too proud of that, uh, you know, I can't get off the internet. But the bios also are problematic. So do you want to comment about your bio? <laughs> yeah, I um, 
I was chatting with the person who was interviewing me for the bio, and we never really got to talking about any, anything that I actually did professionally. So for those of you who haven't clued it in yet, I'm the scuba diving prof who applied to be an astronaut. Spoiler alert, she doesn't go to space. No, I only got halfway through. It was fun, though. That was actually, that was probably the most interesting moment was I actually got the news that I'd made it through to the fifth round or to the fourth round while I was proctoring an exam. <laughs> I was trying my best to be really quiet and at the end, like, what's up? And I'm like, I got halfway through the astronaut selection process. And they're like, what? <laughs> so. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the bios, I, I think you and I both should uh, kind of uh, go behind the curtain on this one. So the bios were actually done in consultation with us. The profs were all interviewed. And uh, the, the, the weird thing is that they asked us everything about how we teach and research. And the most obscure things that come out in those conversations are the things that are posted online. So um, it's very evident that these were geared towards, uh, I guess, high school students. For I think that was, that was the audience that they told us um, yeah. because we were all complaining going, hey, you know, I pulled in X million dollars or I'm the kind of uh, authoritative source on X topic and you talk about scuba diving or like, you know, my attic raccoon problem. Like these are weird things, right? Um, so, so, I mean, do you- Although- do you, Oh. In fairness, I actually got a call from Deloitte because I got an email saying, hey, we read this paper, we'd like to talk to you. And then I'm doing a phone call with these guys in Tokyo. And one of them was like, hey, so I came across your bio and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, it's really cool. I was also, he goes, I also made it to the finals for astronaut selection in Japan. And I got to do all the mission control training with Chris Hadfield. And I'm like, oh, serious? Yeah, wow. and I'm like, but I'm sitting there going like, buddy, I didn't make it to the finals, but so glad that we have this point of commonality. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that like one-on-one -on -one direct, like that you'd actually at some point be like taught or under the wing of Hadfield, man. That, that's yeah. pretty nuts. He, he was, he made it to the top three <laughs> and he was the guy who didn't become an astronaut. So he was a, a smart building consultant. He works at Deloitte in really? Tokyo. Oh, that's yeah. nuts. That's nuts. Small so, world. I, I think I think that's kind of in a nutshell all the wacky stuff that kind of goes on behind the scenes. So if you guys are ever wondering why our bios or uh, why our photos look a certain way, um, it's not because we actually chose to do that. We we said we had choices of like how many photos or what photos could be taken, but at the end of the day, they just kind of went with whatever they did, and you know we didn't want to be the guys that held it back. So what you see is not what we wanted out there. Okay. And the one photo that I decided that I wanted to do. I'm actually sitting in a tree for one of my photos, and they went and cropped the tree up, so you can't even tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're I, one I of those climbed a tree. tree hugger. Yeah, those, yeah. those hippie kids, man. Totally. Okay, so let's talk about more things, because I think you've talked about all the stuff that you have taught um, in, in the school, but let's talk about architecture. Come back to this, right? Because you are a mech um, eng. Uh, but teaching in architectural science, and you teach a lot of things beyond Mac, you teach obviously the, as you said earlier, the, the kind of project economics and the management side of things. But I think now you can give us a little bit of a lesson on architecture, okay? So as many of you guys know, if you've ever been in my classes, I like to teach with you know, car accidents more than giving safety belt or seat belt instruction videos. So um, let's talk about the worst buildings. So this is my usual segment of, hey, prof, what's the worst building, why, and what can we learn from it? Well, for me, the worst building on campus is hands down the student, student learning center. 
There's uh, good things about it, but, and it's just a five minute litmus test. Okay. Go to the SLC, go up to the beach and sit by the window for 10 minutes. That's all you have to do. And then you'll understand. I've actually talked to the principal at the mechanical engineering firm who actually did the design. Mm-hmm. And he told me point blank that they, they knew that it was going to be impossible to maintain any sort of comfort conditions with that much glass. Hmm. And they said so. They said we can't, given the space that we have, because we have just those itty bitty little ducks, mm-hmm. given this much glass, we can't ever make it comfortable. So and the architect I, said, yeah, it's a big space. You can move around. Like maybe you can f- walk around and find a place that's more comfortable. There's well, they do have free range students cold there. Pla- yeah. So, you know, there's hot places and cold places. And if you move around enough, maybe you'll find a place you like. And that in a nutshell is my problem with that building. Other than the fact that and this is a project management thing, that building was about $80 million and half of it is the windows. Wait, dude, are you allowed to disclose that stuff, man? Yeah, it's public interest. Okay, if you look, okay, if you Google okay, it, it's okay. there. Just, I, just, I just want to make sure we want like, like more stuff I got to edit after the fact. That facade is $40 million facade. Every That's single one of those glass. windows yeah, well, is $10,000. Yeah. That is the best fridge glass in the world. It is mm. triple glazed, argon filled, low E-coated, custom fritted, $10,000 a pane. And yet you sit beside it in the summer and you're going to bake. And you sit mm. beside it in the winter and you're going to freeze. It is, it is a miserable enclosure for a building. And that's why if you ever have me in studio, kids, just know. And I, and I warn you about this the first day. A glazed building is an automatic F. It is uh, if it's fully you, glazed. You a greenhouse? How about, how about if I designed a greenhouse? Come on, Jen. Yeah, if you're doing a greenhouse, but then you've <laughs> got to have the proper ventilation so you don't kill all the plants because you'll bake them. Yeah. But no, I think a lot of people in architecture, and just to, to get serious for a moment, I think a lot of our of students coming into architecture look at the European buildings because Europe and Canada have dramatically different climates, Mm -hmm. right? Especially if you look at at the Dutch, you know, their winter design temperature is about zero, zero to five degrees. Mm -hmm. Their summer design temperature is about 20 to 25 degrees. Whereas we have to deal with minus 22 in the winter and plus Mm. 31 in the summertime. So, while in the Netherlands, lighting is a big part of your load because your heating and cooling are actually quite small. Mm-hmm. So daylighting is really important and really valuable from an energy conservation perspective. In Canada, it's going to be 10%, if that. So, and 80% is going to be heating and cooling and your, your glazing is going to bake you with heat in the summertime and leak heat right out of you in the wintertime. So it's, it's just not, you know, you put windows where it makes sense, but we shouldn't have this idea that floor to ceiling glass is the default architecture. Yeah, I think it kind of uh, gets, it's like contagious, right? Like, I mean, we, we got Toronto condominiumitis, right? Where floor to ceiling condos, which even further makes less sense, right? Like privacy issues all notwithstanding, I mean, you're basically making, you know, 40 story greenhouses. And I think what you see in the SLC is a kind of uh, bastardization of like, okay, so just for those of you guys that are not familiar with Ryerson campus or are the general public, the Student Learning Center in Ryerson, it's on Young Street, it's kind of Young Gould, it's the north uh, east corner. It looks like a kind of, what do you say, a glass box that got kicked down the street. So the corners got kicked in and they got blue bruises and stuff like that, that's is that what you'd say it kind of looks like is it like aesthetically it's a pretty building and everybody they seems to pr- love word, those the stairs word pretty. Yeah, i use yeah. the word pretty because that's the only nice thing i can think to say about it, it doesn't work 
The spaces are awkward. It's got a triangular grid. It's got like entire offices where you can only use half the footprint because the walls are sloped out so you can't yeah. even get to them. Right? Like it, there's so many issues that I have with that building. So I'm trying to say something nice. So I wouldn't necessarily uh, like liken it to the result of kick the can. Um, I would liken it more to like a video game um, where like every floor is a different level. And I feel like I should be fighting a prof, like a video game boss or something. Cause it's like, this is the fire level. This is the ice level. This is the green forest level. Oh yeah, and this for is sure. The beach level. Um, yeah. I, I think that the, the continuity among the floors uh, is, is a little bit of a question mark to me. Yeah. Yeah. In any event. Um, so we've got, we got a sense of like what we can learn and that also does kind of play cards on what Jen does or doesn't like. So I think we're, we're just about to close things out, but I got two questions for you. The first one is really anecdotally, right? You've been a prof for, I don't know, how many years now? How Six. long has it been? Six, Six oh years. My, God. my God, I'm old. My God, am I old now? <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, I, I remember when Jen was just this high and we hired her. Oh. <laughs> Um, oh my God! Six okay. The so height of toadstool. Yes, there we go. So, so we, we've we've basically had you for six years. You've seen uh, the students, good and bad. And I was just wondering if you had any good, fun stories. And and of course, you can't disclose, you know, student IDs and personal information. But you and I have had conversations about students doing bad, stupid, dumb, unethical, illegal things. I mean, we we've got the range. I mean, you can you can bring out of the you know, just put your hand in there and just pull any one story that you want to share just so that you can bring some levity into a student listening to this podcast right now? Um, well, it's interesting because I teach in fourth year, I teach an elective called uh, Procurement and Construction Management. It's like a winter term course. And I'll have a lot of questions of, you know, if you're the building owner, how would you procure this project? And what are some advantages for the contractor or whatever advantages for the owner? And inevitably every year, I get some student who goes full on slime ball and they're like, there's a really great opportunity to steal and you could totally rip somebody off. And here's this. And I'm like, I almost have to have a stamp that says like, like douchebag behavior doesn't get marks. I actually do have a special stamp though. I don't, I must've shown it to you last year for Christmas I got a set of stamps, like custom stamps that somebody oh, really? made for me for marking. Aww. One of them is for essays, and it says, say and don't make it so, because <laughs> you need to set your work. Yeah. And the other one is my catch-all stamp for exams that says, please, for the love of all that is good in the world, read the blank instructions. Mm, yeah. And See, it's nice I, because I, I've written that so many times that I'm like, I just need a stamp for this. So now I have so, it. So just, just to kind of get a little bit more detail here, because I think for the general student population or students that haven't, or in general population who doesn't know, like uh, what, what, what kind, like I think you need to give some more details as to, because I know, I think I know what you're, which story you're referring to, but you know, I think you got to define a little bit what is and is not a slime ball move. Well, like I said, saying that I could use this, I would recommend that we use this contract because it's a great way to cheat the other person. It gives me the opportunity to steal from them. If I lied, I could get ahead by doing X. So it's really more part of, because when I'm teaching the third year project economics course, mm -hmm. I, I, I was actually being sarcastic about it being the course everybody looks forward to. I know full well that nobody goes to architecture school to take economics. And yet- What? I know. I know. 
I have engineering <laughs> friends who ask me who I killed to be stuck teaching that course. Actually, it's really funny because well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, but it's because I've done so much project management training. I've got a lot of stories from the field and lots of rather ridiculous stories in some cases and war stories. So it winds up being actually a lot more fun than I think most people are expecting. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny, you're mentioning this because it just reminds me of like this hierarchy of teachers, right? Like, you know, in, in, in high school, there's a hierarchy of teachers, like there's like the, the chemistry and biology teacher that knows everything. And like, you know, they could have been a doctor if they wanted to. Then you, below them, you got maybe the, uh, the, the, the kind of econ slash arts teacher, history, knows geography. And then below that, you guys, you kind of got the English prof who like, I don't know, they had an English degree, right? And then you go down, it's like the music prof or music teacher. And then you got like the high school gym teacher because if you can't teach any of that stuff, you can teach gym. I would say there's a little bit of a different hierarchy, but in, in being a prof, I'd say like, you know, everyone wants to be a studio prof, right? And fortunately at Ryerson, we all get an opportunity to be in studio. But then there's like the, the kind of, history theory profs, because let's be honest here, history theory, it changes, but I mean, not as dramatically as say, uh, I don't know, business practice or contract types and stuff. Um, and then we got after, after the history theory, you kind of got those profs that have to teach the tech. And if you ever had to teach your parents how to use email, you know, teaching tech, whether it's software or, you know, hardware, it's a pain. And then of course you got the, the guys that kind of teach structures. Cause that usually sucks the most. Cause let's be honest here. You thought, you thought, you know, going into architecture was all going to be about design. No, 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 there's physics and structures and stuff. So in the old days, that used to be, and in conventional programs, the structures curriculum, those props, that they have it rough. But now at, at, you know, at our program, we actually make sure that students know that you can't just simply have a pretty building that looks cool and that kind of, you know, has a certain appearance. It's actually got to be feasible. Um, and that's the stuff where that project economics course comes in. So yeah, you unfortunately have like a new tier of like unenviable course loading there. I love it though. For me, it's for me, it's Disneyland. I actually yeah, really enjoy you, that man. stuff. Hey, I was I've I've been a real project manager, but no, but but one one of my policies for it is if I'm going to talk about money, I also need to talk about ethics. So it's actually we actually cover all of the NCARB ethics questions mm -hmm. over the course of the program. But I'm trying to you know let us think about what does it mean to be professionals. What does it mean to make ethical decisions and actually you know, use the values that we have as people and how do we work in the public interest? How do we do that sort of thing? And that's, that's interesting. So when I've taught people that in third year and then they turn around and their answers to questions are, well, I could steal this way. I feel like a failure. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, like, that's like, that's like when you're, when you're a parent and your child gets arrested for like manslaughter or something, it's like, whoa, whoa what happened there, man? Yeah. Oh. So my last question as we wrap it up, because I know we're getting long, but, um, the, the question would be, are there any things that we should know about you that, um, you know, might not necessarily be captured? And it doesn't have to be like, oh, you know, I got this award for research or whatever. I think it's more about like, you know, random things that, you know, most people would never have a chance to really get to know. Because part of this whole entire podcast series is to make sure that people are more accessible or seen as more approachable because God knows I am approachable. Right. And I want to make sure that the other profs are coming across as approachable too. So, I mean, you know, we've had some profs disclose, you know, where their um, favorite, uh, where they have an extra nipple or tattoo or um, where they, uh, I don't know, uh, go out for the weekends and, 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 you know, what they do for fun that like a hobby that we didn't know. Now we know, of course, you're NASA. We know about your uh, scuba diving. So come on, give us something that, you know, you feel comfortable with giving us that mm. you wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, fun stuff. 
My other two big hobbies, other than trying to be a Canadian astronaut and spending time way down underwater, I love kayaking. And I, and I actually cut out in the summertime. I go kayaking every couple of weeks in the Toronto mm -hmm. Harbor. So that's mm -hmm. fun. I do aerial silks. Which oh, is serious? That, yeah, that Cirque du Soleil oh. thing where you actually climb up. I'm not nearly as good at it as I'd like to be. But, oh my uh, gosh. I had to give a studio with the Circus Performing Arts Center and we actually all had the students do the silks. Man, I, that, it is, that, it's yeah. killer. It's yeah. really, really tough. I <laughs> took it up as cross-training for Taekwondo because I actually am a second degree black belt in Taekwondo as well. I knew you were going to cover that one. I was hoping you were going to do it. And, yeah. and I'm a pacifist, so don't worry. It doesn't mean that I'm going to beat you up. I'm not, it until you just means I can handle grades. myself. Don't 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 file an appeal, man. Just don't file an appeal. Uh, okay, so um, that's that's good to know. And you know what? I I think that all these bits of information, both the technical from BIM and project management and oversight, all the way through to, of course, the fact that you have this thing for athletics and nature and and all that, whatever. Um, so uh, I'm glad we had an opportunity to have you come in and give a chat with us. Uh, hopefully you will have a good time as the pandemic continues, but obviously uh, if we can get that link sooner and later, we'll post that up um, eventually. And as for me, uh, I just wanna say thanks for taking time out to uh, join the rest of the school and the general public. Hey, it's my pleasure. Stay safe, everyone. Take care.